Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Leslie Gist. Um, you're listening to the Gist of Freedom, and we have a very special guest tonight. His name is Arthur McFarland. He is the great grandson of W.E.B. Du Bois, right? And he's also related to Booker T. Washington. Uh, he will be talking about the Confederate monuments, the incident in Charlottesville, and also a essay W.E.B. Du Bois uh, penned many, many years ago about Robert Lee. So are you on the line, Mr. McFarland? Yes, you are. Thank you can for you joining us, Mr. McFarland. I can hear you very, very uh, well. You, you sound good. Great. Okay, so um, did you hear the introduction? Thanks for having me on again. Oh, always. We've done yeah. a lot of different projects together. You always come through. You know, you just you keep you uphold the legacy of the great people that you um, are related to. Um, let's start off by. Let's start off right there. Let's talk about your legacy. And I know you've been on the show several times. But for those who are unfamiliar with you, they like to know um, who you are and how you are related to Booker T. Washington and um, Mr. W.E.B. Du Bois. And I have some questions on my Facebook page. Um, so if you want to start off there. So I probably should correct yeah, I should correct the record. I'm I'm actually just related to W. E. B. Du Bois, as of, I can say just. Um, okay. So yeah, I actually am not related to Booker T. Washington in any way. Although uh, I have met a young man here who lives in uh, Denver, uh, who is related mm-hmm. to uh, Booker T. Washington and Frederick Douglass, which is kind of an interesting combination. But I am the great grandson of W. E. B. Du Bois. He is my mother's grandfather, and um, okay. that's how I'm related to him. Okay. I'm not And uh, you, you, another you know. I'm trying to remember who was that, but I I'm, I'm sorry, that. Okay. I think I have you confused with another guest. I remember who was it that I interviewed um, who was related to oh. both. Yeah. I have to set the record straight, yeah. so... Um, to my Facebook friends, I apologize. Um, I said, you know, to give you a call and they can ask you directly. So let's move on. Um, so we know that um, W.E.B. Du Bois did write a essay about Robert Lee. Um, yes. Yeah. I, I think it's timely. Can you tell us a little bit about the the essay and what you like most about it? So it's an essay that uh, Grandpa wrote uh, back in 1928, and uh, he talked about Robert E. Lee. And, um, you know, as a preface to these comments, I have to say that uh, Grandpa has very good kind of credentials around this issue. He wrote a dissertation about the slave trade called The Suppression of the African Slave Trade. He wrote a book in uh, the 1930s about black reconstruction. Uh, He also wrote while he was at Harvard uh, about Jefferson Davis and spoke about Jefferson Davis. And so 
And he also taught at Atlanta University, and so he spent a number of years in the South and, and living in the South. So in many ways, I think that his article is uh, very important because he's very knowledgeable about the South. Mm -hmm. And he comes right out and, and says that, you know, Robert E. Lee did not fight uh, a war because of speech rights. He fought a war because he wanted to continue slavery. And there are a number of documents out there that point directly to these states seceding from the Union over the issue of slavery, not over the issue of states' rights. And so Grandpa very specifically goes in and says that um, uh, they wanted to perpetuate this, this myth about you know, fighting for states' rights, and it, it is just that. It's a myth. And uh, mm -hmm. he also goes on to say that um, he believes that uh, Robert E. Lee just didn't have the moral courage to stand up for what he knew was right, which was to, to free the slaves, uh, but he really could not resist the people around him, um, his friends and, and his, his family. Um, he uh, really, I think, comes right out and, and says that uh, Robert E. Lee was a murderer and he was a traitor. Oh, okay. Can't say any better than that. Um, what nope. statues? <laughs> now, you know, we know about the incidents in Charlottesville. Let's go back a few years when one of the first times I interviewed you. There was a similar incident where we could call it white terrorism um, took place in the town that mm -hmm. you currently reside. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that incident? So, I mean, there are a number of incidents that we can look at, um, obviously, all across the country and uh, really see as being part of this whole cycle of police brutality and, um, and racism and that sort of thing. I think they're all tied together in many ways. I have a very good friend here uh, in Colorado who... Um, was accosted by the police and nearly beaten to death. Uh, he, not too long ago, won a, a civil suit against the city of Denver uh, for the way he was treated at the hands uh, of the police. Uh, he and some folks put together uh, a, a documentary, a short documentary about it, uh, and he actually won an, uh, an Emmy uh, for the work that they did around describing the incident that happened to him. But it is those kinds of incidents that I think that have really caused African Americans in this country to look askance at the police, let's just say, um, who are, to fear the police, to, to mistrust the police, to doubt that the police are there to protect them. And it is those kinds of incidents uh, that happen to my friends that happen all over this country that make it so that people in, in most cities really don't. Uh, who are African-American anyway, or people of color, don't trust the police. Um, and these incidents, you know, aren't new, as we know. They, they go back historically for, you know, 100 years, 200 years, and they are just simply an extension, uh, in my mind, of the, you know, the feeling that pe people of color, black people in particular, um, are perceived as being inferior by the system. Uh, they're perceived as being somehow um, people that should be treated this way. And, and that's really, I think, the, the piece of this puzzle 
that we have to, to fight against and that Grandpa spent his life fighting against. He spent his life trying to show that, in fact, black people were artists and they were um, mayors and they were landowners and but they were carpenters and they were... Now, do you have to be an uh-huh. art, an artist or a physician or some sort of intellect in order to get this respect that everybody deserves, even if you are a black murderer or a black um, person on drugs or even a, a black criminal? Shouldn't everyone, all black people, no matter what status um, they happen to fall in or be born into, um, receive this type of respect? Absolutely. I mean, I think that's really the point mm-hmm. that uh, ultimately Grandpa was trying to make was that we were always mislabeled as being these things here. They were, we were always mislabeled, as you say, as drug addicts and, and you know, mm-hmm. on welfare and this and that. And, and the fact mm-hmm. of the matter is that wasn't true. We were, we were being portrayed in one way, and the reality right. was here's who we really are. We are no different than any other group of people in this country. Yes, we have some subset of African Americans who, are, who deal drugs or who take drugs or who are alcoholics, but that's also true of whites and of Asians and of, of, of um, Latinos. Every group has some uh-huh. portion of it that you could label uh-huh. in this way, but the labeling uh-huh. doesn't make all of us that. And it doesn't help to move forward if you want to build trust in the African-American community, if you want to sit around and actually have a conversation about who we are and what we want and where we want to go, then let's have that conversation instead of sitting around going through the labeling and going through all of the the mislabeling and misnomers that are attached to us. I think that's a huge part of what makes people who are African-American mistrust the system, mistrust others in the system, because all they get Mm -hmm. is this negative perspective, this negative portrayal of them. Mm -hmm. And I I, I understand that. Um, But when it comes to social justice, no one else is dividing the race by their economic status or their educational status. I understand it is a two-heart problem, um, and I like what, what Du Bois did with taking pictures and documenting um, African Americans coming from all different, um, you know, social social economic status. Um, but um, at the same time, I don't want to give the white supremacists any excuse. Or, or validate any inhumane treatment to anybody that is part of my race. And so, you know, I, I think we have to take care of the, the least of us, the ones who are the most vulnerable, and make sure their rights are protected first. Because as MLK said, injustice anywhere is a threat to injustice everywhere. So, um, you know, I appreciate the work of, of Du Bois, but also think that we don't want to take on the ways of our 
of our oppressor, we should be recognized based on our different class status, especially the status that they that they um, would like to put us in. So you can make a comment or we can just move on to the, the next segment of the show. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I don't think that we should ever accept the labeling or any of the, the kind of compartmentalization or the name calling or whatever you whatever phrase you want to put uh-huh. in there. That's we should be able uh-huh. to define ourselves, and we should be uh-huh. able to define our culture ourselves. Uh, I think that the interesting part to me, anyway, is that uh-huh. we have in many ways bought into how we've been labeled and we've bought into how we've been portrayed. And I think that is what you're seeing playing itself out uh, today as it did in some ways in the 1960s and the 1920s. You're seeing black people stand up and say, no, I don't have to accept the way you portray me. I don't have to accept Mm -hmm. the way that you have labeled me. This is who I am. Mm -hmm. I'm going to define who I am and I'm going to define what I want to do, how I want to be educated and where I sit in this society. Now, I think the biggest thing that we as African Americans could do is to realize who the real enemy is. The real enemy is not each other. The real enemy is not in ourselves. The real enemy is the 1% in this society who own 50% of, of the wealth and who own 50% of the, the, of the, the um, economic um, well, well-being in this country. I think people need to understand that as, as a 99%, you know, whether you're uh-huh. African American or white or Latino or whatever the case may be, the boot is on your throat just as much as it is on anyone else's because the 1% don't care. All they care about is maintaining their control over, over society, maintaining their wealth, and maintaining their position. Now, I think that's the discussion. That's the real argument. That's the real place that right. we should be right. talking about and not about white, black, Latino, this and that and the other. All of us are in the mm-hmm. same boat if we're not a part of the 1%. Right. Beautifully said. Now, when we talk about this monument, could you uh, bring us up to speed to what happened in Charlottesville? And oh, I know I forgot something. In Colorado, there was a shooting in Aurora, Colorado. There was a shooting some time ago. Um, in a movie theater? Could you tell me a little bit about that answer? I'm having a hard time hearing you. It's like you're a little muffled. Oh, okay. Is that better? Yeah, that's better. Okay. Yes. Could you tell the audience about Aurora, Colorado? That's the area where you're from. And there was a shooting in the movie theater. Talk a little bit about that incident. So the the shooting happened in a movie theater um, in in central Aurora. Uh, The shooter uh, was a a white man who was a graduate student at the University of Colorado. And uh, he walked into the theater, uh, he paid, walked into the theater, and then walked out an exit and uh, propped the exit open and went and dressed in a bunch of um, tactical gear, got a bunch of guns and and, uh, uh, during an early morning um, showing of the Batman movie, came back in and started uh, shooting. 
and you know shooting people in the theater. And uh, it was a it was a, an event that galvanized the community because you know everybody felt like they were safe. They were in a safe place. And I think it's again incidents like that that cause people to not feel safe and cause a diserosion of a sense of safety in our in our society in our society and in our culture. Um, it was a defining moment for us as a as a city because we needed to come to grips with who he was and and all of the people who died in, in the in the incident and to really come to a place where we could much like in Charlottesville see the people who died as opposed to seeing the person who killed them and I think that's something uh-huh. that's happening in a lot of them the different cities around the nation and, and around the world who are going uh-huh. through these kinds of incidents. We had to look and say, here are the people who were killed randomly by a crazy person, and they are the ones who should be celebrated. They are the ones who should be held up, and it's their names that we should have on the tips of our tongues and not the, not the killer, not the shooter. And that's what mm-hmm. this—that's what this city had to, to wrestle with and had to deal with. And uh, I think I think we've started uh, well down the road of healing uh, uh, behind that incident. Mm-hmm. Now, this person who committed this heinous crime—if um, he had been from a different background, let's say, of a different faith, let's say Islamic. Um, I think the whole incident would have had a whole different spin as far as the mass media. And I think uh, the media in America has a problem with identifying these terrorists as who they are when they terrorize their communities, Americans, movie theaters, malls, schools, churches. And, you know, there's no ban. We have an orange agent in the White House now uh, who wants to ban people based on their faith um, because he suspects that they may be terrorists. What is your take on identifying and what do you think your grandfather would say as far as who do you call a terrorist and how do you identify these terrorists and how do you keep Americans safe? You know, I think that's a really interesting question because when we look back uh, at domestic terrorism in the United States and most of the terrorism that has happened on this, you know, in the United States and on this continent has been, you know, caused by domestic terrorists. You know, aside from 9-11, there have been incidents that have been domestic terrorism and the domestic terrorists have typically been been white folks, um, middle-class folks, folks who've lost their mind in some form, fashion, or another, Um, whether it's the the situation here in Aurora, whether it's the Murrah building, or it's, you know, Ted Kaczynski, the the Unabomber, whatever. You look back, and and the facts are that Mm -hmm. domestic terrorism has been um, the main uh, way that people have died in the United States via a terrorist uh, act aside from 9-11. But of course, mm-hmm. 
9-11 was so traumatic for this country that that is the thing that we hold up and we look to and say, yeah, here were, here were these um, uh, terrorists primarily from Saudi Arabia who came to our country and flew uh, essentially four planes uh, into, into two, two into buildings, three into buildings and one into the ground um, and killed these people. And that's what we focus on. That's, that's what our focus has become. Um, whereas most of the events um, that have happened have been domestic terrorism, and they haven't been done by people who are, of a Muslim, who are Muslim or who are African American or Latino or any of that. So it is an interesting piece of the puzzle. And I think that Grandpa would, would simply have called it out. He would have called out the facts just like I just did. Let's look at right. the facts. And, and right. stop with the stop with all the rhetoric and and stop with all the finger pointing and all the rest of the pieces that go with that. Right, and, and let's move it up to what we're dealing with today with the Charlottesville incident and the response from the White House. Um, you know, these are good people. This is these people. Mean, um, these statues are beautiful statues, and we are writing history because we want to. Americans want to down these these statues. So, could you give our audience, um, you know, the backdrop of what happened in Charlottesville? Well, the first thing I'd like to do in that regard is to extend my condolences to the family and friends of the people who died. Uh, Lieutenant Jay Cullen, uh-huh. uh, Trooper Burke Bates. And of course, uh, Heather Heyer, who was the resident who was run down. I, I would really like to extend my condolences to their family and friends. Um, it, it is a sad place that we are in, in our society, and their deaths were completely unnecessary and, and are tragic. And I, I, I really want that to be the first thing I say about Charlottesville. Mm-hmm. Um, in regards to all of, all of how this got started and, and where it has gone, I mean, obviously the, uh, the, the folks who came from the organizations, the white supremacist organizations and the Nazis and the KKK, uh, came to protest the removal of the Robert E. Lee statue. And to be honest with you, I, I feel like they have every right to protest the um, the removal of the statue. They have every right to the freedom of speech that the First Amendment grants them. Um, as, and they, but the flip side of that coin is that the counter-protesters, other people who believe differently than they, have as much of a right to march and to speak as they do. And I think, I think actually in the Charlottesville situation, um, if those groups had been kept separate and instead of the police taking a laissez-faire approach, I think if they had been kept separate, we probably would have seen a, a different kind of result. We would have seen two groups um, expressing their, 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 their opinions and their perspectives in two separate geographic regions and no fights, no, no tussles, no none of this, and no people getting run down by crazy people. Mm-hmm. You know? So mm-hmm. I think there is a real failure on the part of the Charlottesville police on that part. The second thing that mm-hmm. I would say in, in regard to this is 
the monuments and the statues that are, are, are sprinkled around the country um, in, uh, in honor of the Confederacy need to be moved. They need to be moved to museums where they belong. They belong in a museum that, is, that allows people to then go and look at them if they choose to. They, they belong in a museum where they can be labeled in a way that puts their, their presence and what they stand for in perspective. I don't think we are trying to, that people are trying to throw the history out. I think they're trying to remove the history out from under their noses. I don't think that we as African Americans should have our faces smashed into these kinds of monuments everywhere we turn. Now, there's, a, there's some really good sense in, in my mind that these monuments are really there to just remind us of what our place is in, our, in this society. Um, and there are a number of them that simply don't belong. And they're not just in the South. They're sprinkled all over the place. There's, there's a, one, I think it's in Pittsburgh, that reflects uh, a, a gentleman who was a composer of some songs. And, and there's a picture of him looking down uh, at a, a black man playing a, a guitar. And it's 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 as if you know oh you're you're this guy just you know playing for me or playing playing my songs and it's like right. you know that's 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 not the relationship that we have today and that you know that relationship might have been fine in 1920 it might have been fine in 1880 or whatever but that's not where we are and we African Americans should not have to look at that and be told yeah this is this is your place. Uh, darky, this is your place. Um, and so, right. you know, I, I, I don't accept that. And I think that the way around it is simply to, simply to take the, the monuments view. If you don't want the history lost, put them in a history museum. Put them in a place where people can go and look at it and say, oh, yeah, here's a guy who wrote these songs, and, you know, his sense was, was that I'm getting my inspiration from, from this black man playing this, this, this guitar. Like, I understand. Get rid of it. And, and, I just, I just. Yeah, I saw it on your Facebook page. And for the listeners, you can visit um, Arthur McFarland's Facebook page and friend him if you like. Um, it's Arthur McFarland the third, and also my Facebook is Leslie L E S L E Y G I S T. Um, these monuments and statues, they were they weren't put up in the same um, era that the Civil War took place. You know, um, the historians Correct. are saying that they were all erected during the Jim Crow era, during post-Reconstruction as another terroristic, you know, symbol like the KKK is. So, you know, for for it, it, it was a whitewashing of history when they put these statues up. And I recall when the film... The help came out. Um, we had uh, what is her name? She ended up quitting her job. Well, her name just came and left my mind. Anyway, she um, they asked her to tweet. She was a professor at the time. They asked her to go see the help and to tweet about the movie, whatever she thought. And she ended up explaining on on a television show that during the same era. Black men 
from the Civil War, USCT, fought in the Civil War and were lobbying for a statue and a museum to be put on the mall of Washington, D.C. And they rejected this, mm-hmm. this idea of the mall having a museum or a statue. And instead, out of disrespect, they erected a monument of a mammy. And they attempted to erect it. But mm-hmm. people, yeah, I think your, grand, your grandfather, the boys, and other leaders fought to keep that mammy off of the mall. But she was already sculpted. She was ready to be put on the mall, and they stopped it from happening. So this is the time period that we're talking about, you know, when these statues were erected. And I think it's a great thing to see people fighting while we have this man in the White House. Um, This is the perfect time to say we don't like him and we don't like what he stands for and we don't like the groups that support him. Um, is there anything you have to say about Charlottesville? Anything um, else you I want to say about Charlottesville? That, I think the other thing that I would say about Charlottesville is that we can learn some things about what our voice looks like. Uh, I think the voice of anti-racism and uh, anti-Semitism and anti-homophobia looks like a very diverse voice. It looks like the kind of voice that, that in my mind, looks like all of America, that looks like all of the United States. And I, I really want to emphasize that because I believe that we need each other. We need to join arms. We need to, to walk shoulder to shoulder with one another as the 99% speaking to the 1%. And I believe that we saw that in Charlottesville in many ways. I think we saw that in Phoenix. If you want to talk about how this has, has carried on into, you know, past what happened in Charlottesville, in Phoenix you saw thousands of people come out and, and represent the kind of voice that I think is really the voice of America. I don't think Donald Trump or or the alt-right, as they're called, represents the voice of America. I don't think that's America. And I I really, really want people to to understand that I believe we can overcome the current Mm. voices that are out there that are speaking hate and that are speaking about, you know, speaking racism and speaking anti-Semitism and, and on and on. I really believe we have the numbers and we have the people to, to step up and speak louder and more clearly than that and more clearly about what we believe in as Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as the statute, how would you replace that? All these empty... Um, Monuments are sitting all over the country. They said there's 700 Confederate statues in this country. What do you recommend America uh, do with these empty spaces? I know I saw one picture. Someone said they want to rename that park um, Heather Hayer Park. And, you know, how would you, Mm -hmm. you know, handle this? I mean, I think we have, we have so much 
in this country that we have to celebrate. I think it is far past time that we began to celebrate many of the people who have not been celebrated. How about we celebrate some of the Native American chiefs uh, who lived in the southern state long before uh, white folks came and, and uh, colonized the United States. Why don't we celebrate some of the, the, the people who were uh, of Asian descent that were brought to this country and helped build this country? Why don't we celebrate the people who have built this country, built it up, instead of the people like Robert E. Lee, Robert e. Lee who tried to tear it down? Uh, I just think that we can replace these statues with people who have helped to make this country better uh, and not make this country uh, somehow lesser and, and more hateful. Mm -hmm. Now, there's statues. I have a Let's picture on my face. the whole story, in other words. Right. A balanced balance right. history. Right. Right. Now, um, there's statues yeah, of, 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 of your family members, of your uh, W.E.B. Du Bois. Mm -hmm. And I have a picture that I took off of your Facebook that I used on the Blog Talk Radio. Um, Find mm -hmm. Black History University. It's a picture of you standing mm -hmm. in front of uh, W.E.B. Du Bois uh, statue. Tell us a little bit about that statue and more about where we can visit other statues similar to the one that you are um, standing in front of. Mm -hmm. So the, the statue that you're talking about is a bust that is on the campus of Clark Atlanta University. Uh, Grandpa, after he left the University of Pennsylvania where he wrote the Philadelphia Negro, he went to Atlanta University. He was there in Atlanta University until he went to um, the, the NAACP to write the Crisis Magazine. And then after he left the NAACP in 34, he went back to Atlanta University. So he was there for a couple of stints in time. And so Clark Atlanta University uh, was very gracious in putting a bust up of Grandpa and uh, well done, beautifully done by uh, an excellent sculptor there in the Atlanta area. So that's one place that people can go. Um, another place is Fisk. Fisk has a statue of Grandpa. Uh, that is where Grandpa went to get his undergraduate, his first undergraduate degree. Um, he went there directly from his hometown in Great Barrington, Massachusetts. Um, there's also a bust of Grandpa in the Schomburg Library in New York City, right around the corner from where I was raised. Uh, the Schomburg is on 135th Street and Lenox Avenue there. So there's a bust of Grandpa there. There's also a bust of Grandpa in uh, Harvard uh, University. He, uh, they made a bust of him to celebrate the fact that his uh, dissertation, Expression of the African Slave Trade, was the first book in the Harvard Historical Series. And so there's a bust there. And then for your listeners who are interested in, in taking a little bit of a road trip, um, there is a bust of Grandpa in Accra, Ghana, at his uh, grave site uh, there in, uh, in Accra. So those are the ones that I'm aware of. Okay. All right. Um, last question. Um, the president's... Uh, um, his response to the woman Heather being mowed down at a anti-white supremacist rally. Um, you know, have you ever read anything 
any kind of response to something so horrific. The closest thing I could think of is the governor who says segregation from now, segregation forever. Um, what was his name? He sounded like him. Wallace. I don't think I was even born. Who was the governor that said Wallace? Governor mm-hmm. Wallace. Um, have mm-hmm. you ever governor read Wallace anything? from Alabama. <laughs> yeah, Alabama. Now, this man supposedly well, was born in Queens, New York, from New York. And he's having a very similar reaction to the murder of a white woman. You know, this is not a black person. This is not Black Lives Matter. This is not, you know, a radical, quote, radical black group. This is a pure white woman who was out there exercising her rights, and she's mowed down, and someone who looks like her, who you think would be protect her, is saying those were great people, and it was both sides. You know, as a, as a descendant of the voice, you know, have you ever read anything like this or ever imagined that someone would be holding that position at this time in history, voicing that type of opinion? Well, I, I, I like the little bit that you added there in the, at the end, at this time in history. Now, obviously, over <laughs> the history of the United States, lots of people has said things like we heard um, the 45th president say, uh, you mm-hmm. know, whether it was Wallace or whether it was Strom Thurmond, uh, whether it was, um, you know, uh, goodness, I, the list is so long. I'm just, I'm kind of, kind of like, what do we, who do I want to really bring forward? I mean, obviously, uh, there have been so many people who have taken this perspective. Now, did I expect the president of the 45th president of the United States in 2017 to take that perspective? Absolutely not. Could the, could candidate Trump, when he was running as part of you know as a Republican to try to get the Republican nomination, can he choose to take that kind of a, a divisive perspective and try to, to differentiate himself from the crowd of, of presidential candidates. Okay, if that's what the, the tactic that he wants to take, go for it. But once he was elected president of the United States, I had the expectation that he would take the position that is the position, I believe, of the majority of the people of this country. And he failed miserably doing that. And so when I look at the, the ways that he has approached the, the Charlottesville situation and when I look at the, way, the things that he said and the ways that he's tried to um, supposedly come out against uh, white supremacists, I, I don't see it. I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm not convinced by the words he uses and the ways he uses them that he really wants us to feel as though we're a part of this country. I think he is towing the line for the people who put him in office, Um, um, some of those people, because I don't believe that all of the people that voted for Donald Trump believe the things that he's been saying. (laughs) I believe that there are a number of people who voted for Donald Trump for completely different reasons. So I'm not going to sit here and say, yeah, every person who voted for Donald Trump is a racist or a sexist or an anti-Semite. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that Donald Trump has represented himself in his own words, in his own statements, in that way. And if people 
here is the opportunity for the people who voted for him and the people who are supporting him to step out of that shadow and open their mouths and say, I voted for Donald Trump, but I don't believe some of the things that Donald Trump is saying. Perfect, perfect. Here's well said. But, right, and, and I, I agree with you wholeheartedly because I think we would be naive to think that he would change his spots from what he what he uh, presented himself to be during the campaign and then overnight, like Cinderella, become this presidential person and say things that he should say. He's not ever going to do that. But what is disappointing is how we as we the people, will allow him to get away with it. He is supposed to do what he's doing. That's what he said he is. He he came in that way. He's keeping his promise. He is the same person who put put out an ad, a few full-page ads in New York to say that he wanted to bring the death penalty back to execute teenagers who were not found guilty and still haven't been found guilty. Um, since then has been vindicated. He still refuses to acknowledge that these young men were uh, railroaded. To this day, he won't acknowledge it. So we can't, you know, I don't want him to lie about who he is. We know who he is. And, you know, but at the same time, we're the ones that that are at fault for allowing him to get away with saying these things and to perpetuate these things to have said all the things he had said during the campaign, get them out of here. You know what we would have done to them. He was violent throughout the whole campaign. And he was, you know, these were criminal acts. If anyone else had, if Barack had done that throughout his campaign, he would have been subjected to the laws of this country. But yet this man can just do whatever he wants and we're not, saying one word except please say what we want you to say, what we want to hear. Well, I think there are a lot of people who are out there who are uh, saying something different. I think there have been a lot of people who have been saying something um, different for quite some time throughout Trump's um, candidacy. I think the thing that happened, if you go back and you listen to Trump's candidacy kind of from the beginning, I think there was a lot of expectation by people, um, you know, across the board, across the spectrum, across both Republican and Democrat, rich and poor, whatever, um, that mm-hmm. really expected Donald Trump to get knocked out of the, the, the Republican candidacy fairly early for some of the things that he said, and people were were amazed that he didn't. He kept saying mm-hmm. things that that would have would have shattered the candidacy of any other candidate that we can think of in uh-huh. history, right? Uh-huh. We were all thinking right. that going, you know, every time he would say something that, that left us incredulous, we would be, oh, yeah, he's gone. He, he just put his foot in his leg and, and you know, half of his, his, half of his body in his mouth, and he's done. He's toast. He's over. But that wasn't the uh-huh. case. And that wasn't the case because he kept resonating with some 
group of people in this country over other issues. And so people kept saying, well, yeah, he's talking about these things over here, and no, I don't necessarily agree with him, but he's also saying these things over here about the economy and about jobs and about you know mm-hmm. this and that, and, and what he's going to do to bring back coal and what he's going to do to bring back jobs because NAFTA is that. He kept hitting chords in this country that with people that, that, that said, oh, okay, I'm going to ignore all of this stuff he said over here because I want this and I want to hear this, and here's a candidate who is saying something to me that I want to hear. That's the first thing. Mm-hmm. The second part was Donald Trump is a true outsider. He is a true outsider to the political system, and I think there is a, mm-hmm. there is a large swath of this country that is very disenchanted with the political system, whether it's at the local level, the state level, or the national level, and particularly at the national level between Congress and the presidency, they are just completely done. And I think those were people who said, hey, this guy is the only one who is a true outsider. Everybody else has been in the political system for decades. And, you know, that was true of the Clintons, that, of, of Hillary Clinton. That was true of Bernie Sanders. That was true of, of all of the po- politicians on the Republican side, you looked at that group, and they were all um, longtime politicians of one kind or another. And I think that part also resonated for a large number of people. And so here you are. Politicians in general have done things to, dis- to completely diss everybody in the political system. And I think the country just said, hey, we want somebody. We want somebody completely different. We want somebody who's a complete outsider, and that's Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that's our bell. So, it has been great talking to you. Um, you know, I will call on you again. I appreciate you always answering my call and making yourself accessible. And um, do you have any closing comments or any books or events? Anything about your grandfather you want to promote? Um, I guess kind of in in closing, I'd like to to leave people with a a, a few things. Uh, One thing is uh, there's a really very well-done article by a woman by the name of Donna Ladd, L-A-D-E. And the article is entitled, White America's Overdue Leap of Faith. And it's published in the Jackson Free Press. And so if you go and look for it, you'll, you'll find it. And she has written this article from the perspective of a white woman who grew up in the South, and she talks about her experiences in the South. But she also does a very good job of giving links to information where people can go and study uh, the statues and, and some of the laws that were passed as part of Jim Crow. And, and she really takes, I think, a very... A balanced perspective at delivering information about these things that we're wrestling with when we are looking at these monuments and we're looking at uh, the the kind of, of people who the the KKK and, and, and the alt right represent. So I think that's a, a really great article if folks would like to pick that up. Uh, the other thing that is out there that's relatively new is a book about Grandpa uh, called uh, A Scholar Denied. Um, and it's a book that talks about Grandpa's work as, um, 
as the founder of the first department of sociology in this country. Um, one of the things that, that happened uh, in, in terms of how we, we write history the wrong way, if you will, um, it, it, we tend to think that um, just because somebody wrote it who was, you know, I don't know, scholarly or whatever, that that must be the truth. Well, Dr. Alden Morris writes this book, The Scholar Denied, and he talks about how a lot of people believe that folks at the University of Chicago started the field of sociology when, in fact, W.E.B. Du Bois put together the first Department of Sociology at Atlanta University way before the University of Chicago did. And so that's an excellent book to read if you, if you want to take a, a look at some of the work that Grandpa did. Um, there are a number of things that are going to be going on around the world. Um, next February, Grandpa would have been 150 years old next February, and so uh, I'll be doing a number of different things uh, both here in the United States and in Ghana uh, that people can look out for uh, coming up. Uh, Grandpa was born um, February 23rd uh, in 1868, and so it'll be around his birthday uh, that there'll be a number of events. I'm sure there'll be some things going on at University of Massachusetts at Amherst, where uh, his papers are located at the W.E.B. Du Bois Library there. I'm sure there'll be some things at Harvard, where he went to school. He was the first African-American to get a Ph.D. from there. I assume that this could be doing some things. Uh, I know Clark Atlanta will be doing some things around the work that he did while he was there. So there'll be, I'm sure, a number of things going on around the country to celebrate the, the 150th birthday of W.E.B. Du Bois. So folks can look out mm -hmm. for that in February. Okay. And have you written a book, or do you plan on writing one? <laughs> well, there's a gentleman, um, Randall Westbrook at uh, Rutgers, has asked me to participate in a book that will be about the 150th uh, anniversary of Grandpa's birth, and so I'm, I'm working on a chapter for him. And a number of people have, have tried to coach me into writing a, a book about Grandpa from my perspective. And I'm sure that one of these days when my life isn't quite so busy, I will probably sit down and do that. Um, I, I was talking with a gentleman. We just uh, recently did a peace and reconciliation thing in New York uh, near the, um, the uh, celebration of uh, um, the work that has been done by a group called the Spirit of Peace, um, African Views put together something. Uh, and it was right around Mandela Day. It was actually on Mandela Day at the uh, UN, and, and we did some things to reconcile the differences between W.E.B. Du Bois and Marcus Garvey. And there were a number of people there, including the, the Wali, who was the, the organizer of this event, who were who trying to coach me to, to write a book about Grandpa and write about uh, his Pan-Africanist perspective and um, a number of the different things that he's done. And um, it's in my head and it's in my heart. Mm -hmm. I just have to make it in my schedule. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay. Before long, I'm okay, sure there great. will be a book. <laughs> and what is the name of the book that you're writing a chapter in? So we know to go out and to purchase um, I it? I believe... I believe Randall Westbrook is calling it Du Bois at, at 150 is, I think, the name of the book. I'm not sure what the subtitle is, but I think it's called Du Bois okay. at 150. Okay. All right. Okay. Well, thank you again, and um, we'll be talking soon.
and enjoy the rest of the evening and the rest of the little summer we have left. Thank you. You too, Leslie. Thank you so much for having me on, and I hope your uh, your listeners uh, got something to think about, and, and we'll uh, talk some more soon. All righty. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.